0: Welcome to the latest episode of our Steelcast podcast. Today, we are live here in Port Talbot at the heart of the UK steel industry. Behind me, you can see, for those of you watching, the two blast furnaces here, blast furnace four, blast furnace five. Between them, they produce about three, three and a half million tonnes of iron every year. That iron is made into steel, which is used everywhere and anywhere you can think of, from baked bean cans, to cars, to bridges, to stadia, to uh, pipelines, anywhere you can think of, steel made here will be part of it. Of course, one of the biggest challenges for the steel industry, as we've been talking about in this series, is decarbonisation and sustainability. So what better place to come than where that journey starts? I'm delighted today to be joined by a former colleague of ours, a former steel worker, but now CEO of Net Zero Industry Wales, Ben Bergraf Ben, a very warm welcome. Welcome home, I should say. And
1: thank you very much, Tim. Uh, thank you very much for having me today in this glorious, sunny Port uh, and on the, on, a, on the background where my career actually started in, a, in the steel industry, working on blast furnaces, particularly on the hot blast uh, stoves.
0: Yeah, now I said you are now chair, a uh, CEO of Net Zero Industry Wales. Before we go into the topics of decarbonizing the steel industry and, and clusters and collaboration and all that sort of stuff, tell us a bit about your background. Where did it all start for you and, uh, before you got to this position?
1: Yeah, I, I, my career started actually in, in, in the Netherlands uh, uh, and in particularly in the uh, Amuiden Steelworks, which is still owned by Tata Steel, where I started my career. Uh, within reheating and annealing, uh, where they were um, providing services to the, the whole of uh, the Tata Steel business. At that time, it was still called Chorus, just post the merger between British Steel and Koninklijke Hooghovens. And um, I was actually um, training to become a combustion engineer almost wow. uh, within the R&D department and learned a lot from... Uh, the, uh, the, the kind of older generation within the uh, within that particular department on how combustion processes worked, did a lot of practical work, going inside hot blast stoves, for example, doing adequate measurements, doing a lot of tests, and doing a lot of fuel switching work, actually. And fuel switching is one of those kind of topical, kind of like um, areas of, of, of a decarbonizing industry, is moving away from natural gas, but actually using, for example, hydrogen. And that's something I did in my early career. I always wrote um, article reports quite a lot, and I was a bit frustrated with getting them written and all those brilliant ideas I had in my head, (laughs) and and not always being implemented. So I was really keen to make an impact, and in my work I did also for Portelwood and Wern I found that I actually could make a potential impact in the whole then starting journey process uh, in Portel with the Flamworm in, in, in two thousand and six, and I was lucky enough that John Fairman and a couple of others allowed me to actually join the uh, the process development group and, and play an integral part of their energy optimization team.
0: Yeah, because I know it's a few years since you were here on site, but I always have this vision of you as being kind of part of the environment team. Your focus was always kind of on the environment. I think to the extent you used to ride a bike around the site when everyone else was driving, but you always seemed to have that focus on environment. Was that sort of, a, came from your passion rather than necessarily your, your educational background um, from college?
1: No, I, I think the, the, I think it's not necessarily the environment has always been the background. I think for me, for me it was always for me important to have a, a positive impact, and I think positive impact is mean is not only by the way you actually undertake your work, but also with having some beliefs about how best to go out in your daily activities. And for me, that cycling, for example, on site, was not only a way of actually being more sustainable in the way you come out, actually giving yourself also the time to think and reflect on the meetings in between. Because we often go, and now particularly nowadays, isn't it, between yeah, from teams yeah. meeting to teams meeting, we actually sometimes miss that time of reflection. I think that is what a little bike ride brings from going back from a blast runners meeting, go back to the Abbey General offices, allowed me to really very often just to reflect on that meeting, what could go better, but also to think about how we can make a better impact when we're really reflecting on 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 some of those conversations. And I learned a lot from all these colleagues here on a day-to-day basis, whether I was dealing with the MD or with actually with the operators in the pulpit, all of them had uh, a big impact on, on, on my work now and also how I look at those those challenges um, on, on tackling decarbonisation now yeah. in industry in general.
0: And it's interesting, your role now is about industry, but of course, you know, you've been uh, not only in the steel industry because you left here about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. It was 2014, yeah. In 2014, wow, well, time flies, doesn't yeah. it? Time flies. And went off to work at Welsh Water. And what was your role there? So I initially started um, working there as the
1: energy optimization manager and was responsible for um, Managing the energy consumption for 4,000 sites, going from small pumping stations all the way up to the big sewage treatment works in in, in Cardiff, uh, um, just on the on the outskirts of Cardiff. And um, in that particular role, I actually took a lot of the the learning and transferred that into into Welsh Water. And not only about how we manage energy consumption, and energy costs, but was also about the health and safety aspects as well. So I brought from my old role, a lot of the skills and knowledge into Welsh Water, which actually makes it a, a, a safer place to operate now. Um, so uh, this is great about moving, I think, sometimes companies, is you actually are able to actually bring new skills, or skills from other areas into a new environment. But also what allowed me to do in that role is actually look wide and understand the technical aspects. So what I did on is not only look at the energy consumption area, but also I was actively involved in, in deploying new renewables, whether it's hydro, solar, wind. Right. Uh, and in a later part of my career there, I also um, was actually actively involved in the investment program in shaping it. And, so it was a really interesting area because it was much wider than just energy consumption. It became a commercial, a technical, a project role. And actually that whole team which I led was of 20 people um, was actually there looking after all aspects of energy management, not only consumption but also the contracts of how you procure power. We did some very interesting stuff around incorporating community energy groups and buying power directly from community energy groups from them, not only to benefit Welsh Water, but also actually giving them a better price for the power they generated. And I think you could do some really interesting stuff, but not only you technical stuff. And as an engineer, it pains me to say sometimes, (laughs) but you can have sometimes a better impact with, with having really strong legal and commercial structures there's a lot you can do in that particular area yeah. and it is an important aspect also of uh, reaching net zero it's not only a technical challenge yeah. it's legal, it's a it's a commercial but it's also a social science job uh, uh, because it's a cultural piece change
0: yeah and I guess the water industry and the steel industry probably put you in good stead for your current role because both parts of supply chains both uh, intrinsically linked with government I suspect the water industry is the same as the steel industry in terms of how it works with academia and with communities as well, exactly as you explained. So you then, I guess, led on to your current role. And it's quite a new role, it's quite a new organisation, Net Zero Industry Wales, new organisation, new CEO. I guess you've kind of got a bit of a a blank sheet of paper to start with. You must be starting to think about your aims and aspirations for Net Zero Industry Wales, how it's going to work, what is scope of activity. What's that looking like, Ben?
1: Yeah, exactly Tim, it is literally a blank sheet of paper, although I start not completely starting from scratch, because I think it's important to recognize where we started from. And the start actually originated from uh, the South Wales Industrial Cluster. Yeah. So the South Wales Industrial Cluster was initially a group of like-minded individuals and of which a Tata Steel employee Chris Williams was one of them. That's right. Uh, and actually come together and say we need to start collaborating together. And this is there is a real strong analogy there with the water industry where I think over the last five years I've seen there as well a very strong collaboration between government the regulators actually having a, a private company that has a public and clear purpose we're behind it actually working together with all stakeholders to make things work and that's exactly what SWIC was there to do is to bring companies that traditionally work in a very insular way behind the, 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 the boundaries of the works to optimize itself i think net zero really requires for companies but not only companies the, the local authorities the regulators like NRW, um, but also communities to start working together to actually shape a whole new uh, green economy which we need in order to reach net zero so we have to think, rethink the way we work yeah and i think that's what i learned in bus water that there is a real way of doing that in Wales, is a small nation. Almost everybody knows each other. <laughs> yeah. If there's one place we can make it happen, is in Wales, yeah. and I think that is actually SWIC started that by bringing companies together, developing the cluster plan, which was launched I think in March. But actually, what was really needed as a legal entity to actually help it from being not only a plan to actually make it happen in reality to change. To the landscape in Wales and to make decarbonisation a reality. So that's what Net Zero Industry Wales is here for, It's that yeah. legal entity not to lobby to government for more funding, oh, it's there to really help to deploy and execute those plans which have been developed by companies individually but also collectively. Yeah. So that's what I'm here to do. And And we need to work in a different way. And I'm now in the process of shaping how we can do that.
0: Yeah, and I've heard you use this phrase before, this green industrial economy. And on many of the podcasts we've already done, we've talked so much about collaboration. You know, the world of a company existing in a spot doing a piece of business, I feel like they've gone. And the South Wales Industrial Cluster is a great example of trying to bring uh, similar industries uh, across a geographical network to join up and benefit from changes in technologies. And it feels like we're sort of on the dawn of this new way of working, which is much more collaborative. And it does feel like a camera for a colleague of ours who you know well, I think calls it an industrial ecosystem, and we'll come on to the Celtic Freeport uh, maybe a bit later on in the podcast. But it, it, it makes me remember, in our last podcast we were talking to John Gibbons from Sheffield University, and he was saying about the UK's responsibility, maybe Wales's responsibility, to act as a demonstrator for others to follow. You know, your point there about Wales being a small country. How confident are you that that sort of green industrial revolution or that industrial ecosystem can be proved here in South Wales and maybe hopefully around the steelworks here that others can see it working and can follow? I'm very confident, otherwise
1: you would not have taken up this role. I think for me, I've actually been from the start, even when I applied for the role, I want to make Wales the country of choice for green goods and services. That's my overarching kind of strap-line. I think we're in a perfect place to do that as a nation because I think originally when you look at Wales itself it started with the original industrial revolution we actually had coal on our doorstep and not like poor quality coal we actually (laughs) had Welsh steam coal Mm. and everybody talked about it with a lot of pride um, and actually, it's shaped a lot of the culture, which is common in Wales. It's the male voice choirs, it's the yeah. rugby teams. Yeah. It's not only the call itself; it brought a lot of uh, social cohesion, but it also brought industry on a doorstep. Where not only, um, provided steel goods and services for the economy, and may created that big economic boom, which allowed uh, the nation, Wales, but also. I think the UK in general more to prosper and become these powerhouses in the world. I think it's also, I think, provided that additional cultural and the other aspect. And when we look at what I think also Wales is known for now, is for the well-being of Future Generations Act, yeah. which actually looks at all these aspects. And I think what is really important is that we have a just transition to uh, to net zero. And the reason why I'm so excited and is about the fact that actually with the huge potential we have in the Celtic Sea to develop and deploy floating offshore wind at a scale which is uh, over 20 gigawatts below uh, above, it's long-term still, but that scale is big enough to actually replace most of the fossil fuels, if not all, that we use in Wales and actually become a new abundant source of energy which could power future generation which has been missing ever since the closure of the coal mines. And I think that's an important thing to think about and I think we often talk about the additional cost. We also would also talk about the big challenge, the culture changes, the changes in the way we live. But we also, I think, we need to think about the opportunity this could bring as we to actually for future generations. And I think it all starts with our natural resources. And if we exploit them and learn from the past and exploit them in a way that's now sustainable and actually take the holistic picture, and that's what that well-being of future generations is, it's almost environment, social government, ESG, this yeah. new buzzword in business yeah. at the heart of government. I think that sets the foundation together with the floating offshore wind potential we have. We have now an ability to transform how we actually make goods and services in Wales. And I think it's, for me, it's not only to pilot and showcase. It's actually, you know what? We can actually be on the front forefront. Mm. And I think i just just sitting in the visitor center waiting for you and it was this Ratan Tata quote. Yeah. And clearly say, don't be a follower, be a leader. And I think this nation can be genuinely a leader if it wants it to be. Yeah. So I think for me it's very important to start shaping that culture as an organization that is positive, it's agile, wants to work together, but also has a strong trust with its, its community, yeah. uh, has a really strong policy regulatory framework and works collaboratively with also the Ukraine government to make it work, cross-party, takes politics out of the equation, but also helps to develop a very strong infrastructure. Mm-hmm. With a deep port harbour on your doorstep, yeah, with the fact that you have the Celtic Sea, yeah, with a large wind offshore wind, with already an infrastructure that imports over 20% of the UK's energy in Milford Haven into the UK, and provides not only um, adequate energy, but also energy security to the UK and the wider parts of Europe, particularly important post-Ukraine invasion. I think we're in a perfect
0: um, place to actually be leading. And I can ex- I, and I can understand listeners and, and people in Wales who get very excited about all this talk of renewable energy and, and, and powering Wales in the future. So they might be le- less excited or maybe more cautious about saying, well, that's all very well, Ben, but what about the future of industry, I and mean in particular the steel industry, you know, currently this site is one of, the, one of, if not the highest single points of carbon emissions in the UK and represents yes. I think 15 to 20 percent of Wales is CO2. You know, where does the steel industry specifically sit on your radar's Net Zero Industry Wales? A Net Zero Industry Wales has Tata Steel and Pembroke power station,
1: clearly cited. And and when we talk about, um, because we're getting really strong Welsh government support, financially but also indirectly, um, is that they have particularly carbon budget 3 in their mindset, and also 4 and 5, and decarbonizing those emission sources are really important because it's well over 30, maybe close to 35% of the total Welsh emissions. Coming from only two point sources, yeah. And what makes me feel, and it will really encouraged again. Again, to be very positive, half class full, is I know on the background that the uh, RWE is working very hard on decarbonizing the Pembroke Power Station through the concept what we what they call the Pembroke Net Zero Center, which actually not only looks at a single solution, it looks at taking all the kind of um, tools which we have in our arsenal to actually combat climate change and, and tackle the emergency, like you would do in any emergency, you yeah. wouldn't only <laughs> the one horse is there you would do everything they look at carbon capture Post-combustion at the end of the power station. They look at the introduction of blue hydrogen in the um, in the in in the in the, in the uh, gas turbine that, that generates the electricity. Yep. They look at um, taking some of the energy from the Celtic free uh, Celtic uh, sea directly from the floating offshore, wear on shore and turning that into hydrogen by a big electrolyzer, using that again in the power station, or actually shipping that across from the generation center down via a dedicated pipeline, which will Utilities is currently working on to ship hydrogen from Milford Haven down to to Port Talbot. I think they're using all these tools in their arsenal and they're spending a lot of resources, with government support through the Swic deployment project, yeah. on those projects to actually develop them from concept and ideas into actually a detailed design, which they can then present to their board. I think the same case is the case for Tata. I know that Tata has been openly talking about the different options uh, in the Welsh Electro Committee, more, more recently, where Hugh and Martin talked about that, um, about the different options that, that, this, that this works has on, yeah. on decarbonizing. And I think it 's really good that, that you already work in the back and also know that there 's a huge amount of investment in the background going on to shaping those plans for not being only ideas but actually actually bringing them into detailed design and It gives me a lot of encouragement that actually people are taking this seriously and taking their responsibility seriously to, to combat climate change. Mm. So actually, I, what I want to do is actually really bring that to the forefront to people 's mind that actually there is action taking place, although it might not be visible, but I would say watch that space because in two, three, four years time, I think there will be a really clear view what this place will be in the future, what Pembroke will be doing in the future, and, and what we now need is really also UK government, because mainly it's UK government with their financial support. And then Welsh Government, with the planning and environmental permitting support and resource, yeah. to actually come to the, the the forefront, to work in collaboration with ourselves to make that a reality. Those plants.
0: Yeah, and that's the challenge. I was going to come on. We're going to touch on hydrogen a bit more uh, slightly later on, uh, if we get the time. But that is the challenge, isn't it? For yourself, Net Zero Industry Wales, and for the Welsh Government, you know, you want to decarbonise this plant here. I mean, you know, the blast furnaces people talk about can change into electric arc furnaces. Everything that goes behind is, you know, Ben, having worked here, massively capital intensive the steel industry is. This is billions of pounds to convert from, from that technology. So the question is, you know, what is it that organisations like yours, what is it that the Welsh Government, which is you know, relatively small compared to the UK Government, what is it that they can do to either support that transition, and it's not only CapEx, it's OpEx as well as we know on energy costs. what can you do to support that transition and what do you think is going to be the catalyst for change?
1: I think the first catalyst for change is actually having a clear narrative, a story how industry is actually going to uh, transition to net zero. And I think what I see a lot in the media and also with academics and others, is that you have certain academics and and people putting one single point of view across. So either um, in favor of blue hydrogen, yeah, Uh, or you're against blue hydrogen, in favor of green hydrogen, you're actually in favor of carbon capture and storage. So there's all these polarizing views, and I think there's room for all of those. As I said earlier, if we want to really tackle climate change with the urgency it deserves, we have to take all tools in our our arsenal. And I think what's also important to mention is when we talk about this transition uh, in the story in particular, We really need to talk about what the different roles for different technologies is. And I think in the absence of having a substantially uh, sufficient electrical infrastructure, we have to wait for that to arrive before we can actually electrify and transfer to electricity. In the same way, we haven't got a, uh, an established hydrogen infrastructure. It will take the t- time to develop either to, to, to technologies to, to mix it into natural gas mains, making town's gas again, isn't yeah. it? Because <laughs> yeah. that's what town's gas is. Yeah. It's almost natural gas with hydrogen combined, or actually making dedicated pipelines. It will take at least five to 10 years, times. Mm. And if we really want to hit our 2030 targets as a nation, as the UK uh, wider, um, we have to make sure that we also deploy carbon capture and storage technology initially. Mm. Because that's our first step in actually significant making reduction. And that's why I'm working hard with Net Zero and with all of the members on actually making shipping a priority for UK government to allow shipping to actually take place uh, as part of the new Track 2 deployment take advantage of some of the funding that needs to come from the 20 million pounds, 20 billion pounds that was, was announced earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's really important that we actually start that development of CCS in yeah. Wales. That's the first big step that allows us, and I, I painted to say, to buy us some time to actually then um, to, to develop blue hydrogen at scale, because that's the big bump needed in order to get enough to our pipelines to actually justify the actual uh, investment in those pipelines, but then making use of that CCS technology to, in order to capture those star, uh, the carbon before we actually combust it. Yeah. Just pre-combustion capture, as Tom called. But then in the story, then you go into fuel switching. And that's when green starts to take place, because if we want to fully exploit the Celtic Sea development and the floating offshore wind, We also have to think about not only building enough electrical overhead lines going to Pembroke to bring that to shore, but also we can actually make directly hydrogen from those sources on on, on, on offshore or onshore and pipe that across. Not only to power industry in Wales, but actually going over to Bacton. Yeah. Or actually going over yeah. to to Europe herself, yeah. yeah. and particularly if you think about Ireland, where they have an abundant source of renewables there as well, but not as much industrial or energy demand there. They could actually generate it there, ship it yeah. across the wales and we can become a conduit to it. So there's a real interesting narrative yeah. there developing. But I think the important thing here is that. It is carbon capture that will allow us just to buy some time to remove enough carbon to actually start thinking about that transition. Yeah. That will then allow us to operate those existing assets without demolishing them, yeah, and running to the end of their lives, whilst we then building enough infrastructure, and hydrogen renewable generation of the Celtic Sea to actually be fully net zero by 2050.
0: Yeah, it's one of those difficult things though, isn't it? From a timing perspective, you know, there's a famous saying, isn't it? The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. But if you look at carbon capture technologies, you know, the the best case scenario, that's not gonna come on stream till 2027, 2028. you look at some of the assets here in the steelworks, it's like, well, decisions will need to be made about those assets in a similar sort of time frame, if not yeah. sooner, yes. if you're gonna change it. So, you know, if carbon capture storage was available today yeah. and you had the licenses to ship them and the, and the logistics to ship it, all that great, but it's not, isn't it? And, then, and there's, so there's a few years, this sort of interregnum of saying, well, w- what is the solution? And do we have to just suck it up for a few years until that technology is on stream? Yeah, I think, the, I think if you
1: the think about carbon capture storage, I think there's a bit of a, misnomer, it's fully innovative and it's a completely new. Actually, carbon capture storage has already been operation in Norway for, I, I've been told, about 15 to 20 years. Right. And it was a pilot and demo project. But it's there in existence. And what you will see is the first commercial shipping route between Yara, I think it's in Belgium, Antwerp, going all the way to, to Norway to be stored. Yeah. It's probably the first one at the scale that's going to be deployed. And what is also very interesting when we talk about shipping, CO2 shipping is already happening. And yes. that's really there to bring food-grade CO2 to actually carbonize the, the beer and lagers we like to consume. Particularly in <laughs> weather like this, Tim, yeah, that's is right, when man. we are in the beer gardens at the end of a working day and having a, a bit of relax. <laughs> it is a really interesting thing to, do, to, to reflect on. that Some of those technologies have been existing for decades yeah. and particularly there to, to remove CO2 from existing uh, gas fields and bring it out ashore to make natural gas from it, but also to make food grade CO2. Uh, and so a lot of the, the technologies are already in existence. I think what is lacking was actually really the, the kind of like the, the intervention into the market. And that's what the CO2 business model, the additional funding of UK government will do, is actually to, it's a market intervention to make it actually commercially uh, attractive enough for people to invest in yeah. so I, and, and if you think about the timelines actually they're deploying that between now and so they're looking at for track one. And in projects to be developed in 2023, coming to the financial investment decision summer next year, to be deployed between 20, that's three years, yeah. four years from now. It's actually relatively quick when you look at it from a project <laughs> lifecycle point of view. So, yeah, yeah. I, and but if you think about the the counterfactual here, if you want to do pure green hydrogen or you want to electrify, I think generally speaking, it will take five to ten years for actually the infrastructure to be put aside to, to, to get rid of all of the fossil fuels, yeah. if not longer, and, and so we have to think about what is the quickest we can, we can act, and the quickest act, and John comes across as well, is use this technology to really take carbon out of the atmosphere now mm. and, and store it permanently. Uh, But what you also can do, and what John didn't go on, is actually recycle it at least one time by making sustainable aviation fuel out of it. And carbon capture utilization has really also purpose in that, in that transition period in particular, to actually offset new fossil fuels being used to to do something what CO2 could do now. Again, there's a cost element to that, but actually, and also, there is now a much more driver on that, on the top line for businesses. So, and particularly in Welsh Water, when I was there in the last year, I've never seen investments being so incredibly interested in what we're doing from a decarbonisation point of view. There will be a strong investor pool, there will be a strong customer pool in the future that might in fact come down all the way to the supply chain where you're operating as a foundation industry, yeah. but it will come that people are willing to pay a little bit more Because customers are willing to pay much more for actually a green and more sustainable product. And if it's actually displacing fossil fuels, it's recycling carbon and thinking in a more circular way. Even if it's only one time, it's always better than actually using virgin fossil fuels. All of those technologies play a big role, particularly in transition
0: period. Yeah. And there is no silver bullet, isn't it? Inevitably, it's going to be a combination of these things and depending, again, as John Gibbons said in the last uh, podcast, it depends on the particular business, the particular the state of its assets and actually with aging assets here in Portobello maybe you know we could be one of the first people to adopt some of those technologies so I understand what you said about the commercial benefits of of green technologies and green steel. Our customers are crying out for it. You know, I do wonder how long that will last before it becomes a commodity again and everyone's got it. And if you're not in the game, you know, if you haven't got green steel, you're not in the game at all. But certainly there's a short-term benefit to it. I do want to take you out to the Celtic Sea or to look over the Celtic Sea and we'll do that in a minute. Uh, And we'll just cut and drive round because the view out there is fantastic. And we can talk about the shipping and the pipelines and so on and so forth. But before we go, you know, just while we're here at the blast furnaces, you talked quite a bit about SWIC and you talked about hydrogen. And yes, you said it's a few years away, whether it's blue hydrogen, green hydrogen. But given that few years hence, and having worked in the steel industry yourself, what is the potential role of hydrogen in steel making or, or rolling or processing?
1: I, I, think, I think when you talk about hydrogen, already played a major role in, in steelworks ever since it's integrated steelworks in inception, because you have coal carbon gas. And coke oven gas is 65% hydrogen. So, and and, and coke oven gas itself, and you co- will play a big role in town's gas. Yeah. And I think that is misunderstood, particularly when we talk about the hydrogen narrative, we almost lost that actually hydrogen played a big role in our society. And not that long ago, it's almost gone out of our collective memory, but hydrogen has been a major player. It was mixed in with methane, natural gas, as town's gas Uh, and 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 what i've often said to people when we talk about the steelworks again it's often been seen as a gray rusty kind of place but actually what it is it's it's, particularly integrated steelworks it's a it's one of those energy systems of the future because an integrated steel works has a multi-factor uh, energy system, which not only looks at natural gas and electricity, yeah. Yeah. it has coke oven gas, blast gas, BOSS, boss gas, uh, basically steel-mating gas. Um, it has uh, it steam at different grades, yeah. and actually, you know what, it tries to recycle that and make the best of use of that to maximize maximum mobility and minimize waste, because that's what keeps the cost of steel making low. Really cool. And actually, if you go to a control room uh, in, in, in the steelworks here, it actually shows that. It, all that interaction is being managed on a day-to-day business. And obviously, actually, the steelworks in, 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 its, in its small shape, and I say small because it's small from a national energy system perspective, is actually a good example of how the future energy system will look like, where it's multi-vector. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what we I think look at. But when we talk about the role of hydrogen in particular, it's really important that we don't forget that there are a lot of processes, and particularly processes that depend on using a fossil fuel as a chemical reductant or as a way to improve water quality. Because people say you just burn it and it releases heat. Yeah. Now, in that particular case, often yeah, electricity can do a similar job. Yeah. But actually, there is a lot of things more happening in the flame and in the actual kind of of like uh, exhaust gases that go with it and the environment it creates the reducing environment or sometimes the oxidizing environment that, that determines for example in the reed furnaces how tough the, the scale will be on the layer outside yeah. and yeah. how it easy will break how it actually affects downstream your, your surface defects and the quality you're making yeah. so you really have to think about it in those t- cases and this is a story I'm telling very often to people who don't understand steel making who just think that fossil fuels are here just to be burned now often fossil fuels in this area being used as a reducing agents right it serves uh, that's the primary purpose yeah. and then it releases also heat which then allows us then to to make best use of that so and i think in those purposes hydrogen has a major role to play so whatever the future holds for portable Steelworks, I think hydrogen steel is needed for those particular purposes. Yeah. And whether you are um, using it to, to, to in your rear furnaces in the future, which actually already takes place because you're using coke oven gas, isn't yeah. it? Um, or whether you actually will use it in the future um, if an abundant source, cost-competitive hydrogen will be available here to make, for example, more virgin steels through the direct reduction iron routes. Um, then that is a possibility. But I think it's important that we think about, again, infrastructure. So, if we have a large amount of hydrogen being produced in Milford Haven, if that is going to be piped across to Port Albert, uh, or actually being further piped across to other parts of the UK through the hydrogen transmission system, which National Gas Transmission is working on as Project Union, then actually, we could be at the forefront again on the doorstep, of having a cost-effective, abun- <laughs> cost abundant source of green hydrogen yeah. on our doorstep or low carbon hydrogen, yeah. if it is maybe blue hydrogen initially mm. uh, and then moving on beyond 2050 to pure green, then actually, do you know what? Why wouldn't you do that in Wales? Yeah. Uh, so I think, and that requires again a change of technology, um, but it is all complementary to what you do. Mm. So. I think there is a large contingent amount of scrap, the it, famous statistics over 10 million tons of scrap gets exported and re-imported again as, 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 as steel products that the UK industry is using, um, but I think thinking about the scale of, of, of steel demand being well over 20 million tons, I think there is a rule for all of those to come together, and again, the same story we had about decarbonisation, there is no silver bullet. Yeah. I think there is a rule for all of that to take place in, in, in the UK. Okay. Yeah. and to meet that that ongoing steel demand and particularly to actually make that huge transition and just to go back to SWIC again, they developed a plan that actually outlines to reduce carbon emissions by 16 million tons by 2040. That is 40% of the total carbon emissions that have been emitted in Wales. But it will require 30 billion tons of investment billion pounds of investment. That is over a 15-year horizon. Let's say we can only start from 2025. That's 2 billion on average. And that is on top of the floating offshore wind we're talking about. It's on top of the uh, electrical infrastructure upgrades that need to take place. That's on top of some of the investment on hydrogen and others. Mm. If we start to add that up, that is a level of investment that is unprecedented for Wales. And we probably haven't seen for... Multiple generations, maybe even yeah. post World War II when yeah. we are re- rebuilding our nation at that time. And I think that is an important thing because that actually transition, that large amount of investment, if that takes place, and it's always a big if, but almost is inevitable if we want to move to net zero anyway, um, that will require a lot of steel. Yep. that will require a lot of cement. <laughs> yeah. And what better is that to make that steel and cement in a low carbon way? Yeah. So we are actually not having a large embodied carbon emission while we're building that new infrastructure, which we all need to have a net zero 20, uh, economy by 2050.
0: Yeah, and it's a perfect time, Ben. I think we're gonna, we're gonna jump in the car, we're gonna drive around the site, we're gonna go to the coast, which you know, is a beautiful beach down there. Uh, And we're going to talk a bit more about Celtic Freeport, the potential of that area, the deep water harbour, renewable energy uh, and the role of steel in that hopefully circular economy. So let's jump in the car. Thank you. So here we are, we've come around to the other side of the site here in Port Steelworks and we're now, behind me you can see the Deepwater Harbour. Just along the road there is one of the largest private beaches in Europe. It was the site of some D-Day landing practices and also still on there is the wreck of the Amazon which uh, was, was uh, run aground in 1908 with a loss of 28 lives. So lots and lots of history on this part of the site. We've brought Ben back round to this part of the site, really to talk about the future rather than the, than the history. And recently, Ben, there's been a great announcement about the Celtic Freeport between Port Talbot and Milford Haven. You know, when you look out to sea here and you talk to some of the people about the potential plans for this part of South Wales, what is it that you can imagine?
1: I think what what is imagined this refers back to what I said earlier in the podcast about this this, this untapped they call it, the potential of renewable energy that can be generated out on the Celtic Sea and in Port Talbot in particular is well placed to benefit from the development because it's the only deep sea harbour, which is available within this part of the neck of the woods, and uh, and and still also has some capacity to develop some additional kind of manufacturing and fabrication capability. So, what the Celtic Freeport bid was all about is Milford Haven Port Authority coming together with ABP and working again in a collaborative way of putting a very successful uh, bit uh, forward. To actually that revolves around exploit, exploiting and particularly. The, the, the potential that the Celtic uh, floating offshore wind potential brings but also combining it with the kind of developments of what I talked you about earlier about CO2 shipping, maybe even bringing hydrogen in, either pure hydrogen or ammonia. So all of these different energy factors together and making this port, facility in Port Talbot but also Milford Haven, actually again a really hive in the economic development of Wales and and particularly with the port development as is, I think we have a real opportunity to develop that and exploit that further than it currently is, because currently particularly this harbour is mainly used for the supplying adequate Tata steel with raw materials, yeah. and actually maybe bringing some materials out, and that's it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. And people talk very excitedly. You look, use the word collaboration, and we've used that word a lot. People talk very excitedly about the potential here. You know, we've got a memorandum of understanding with RWE Renewables about looking at the potential to use steel for some of this floating offshore wind. Um, ABP are talking a very similar language about. How we could use this site to um, manufacture and launch renewables. You know, you talked earlier about the potential of using steel in some of these turbine structures. You know, what sort of scale are we talking? What? What? What's, how big are these things, and how much steel could you use in them? Do you think?
1: So, in, in principle, I think we need to think about what, what is what is what we have identified. So, if you look at a global level, if you look at all of the offshore wind potential there is actually only four to five percent is associated with the fixed bottom offshore wind generators which we now have seen actually all the coming all popping up all across the east coast of england but also in north wales or bangor we have, have these fixed bottoms. these are the, the 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 wind turbines which are actually anchored on the seabed directly so, but what we don't appreciate is that actually 95% of the offshore wind is associating with floating offshore wind technology, yeah. which hasn't deployed at scale yet. And I think that's what the, the, the global kind of perspective of this. and of which at least four gigawatts will be deployed between now and 2030, when this year uh, the, Kel- the current state is actually auctioning the seabed for the first four gigawatts to be deployed be- before 2030, But there is a potential for at least another 20 on top of that, plus there are studies out there which think that even 50 or even 100 gigawatts of floating offshore wind can be deployed actually not far away from here. Now if you then think about what is needed to deploy that for one gigawatt of, of offshore wind that they deployed in the Celtic Sea, we talk about at least Somewhere in the region between 80 to 100 structures need to be launched from this port facility here. And each structure will be the size of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, so we see the unloaders behind of that. We just, just talked about it earlier. We talk about at least radical structures, two of them leaving this port. Which at least three, maybe four times the height of the of what we see on the Lotus or a three times the scale of the blast furnaces. So they are very big structures. So if you then think about what is needed to build those there's a huge supply chain needed which isn't there yet so that's what i think the key first challenge is is to build the infrastructure to build those structures in the first place so that's what we see now a lot of work ongoing with abp and with with milford haven about what is needed to actually build those structures.
0: Yeah, because painting the picture is one thing, isn't it? And I know people talk about saying, well, imagine making the steel here. The steel is used for wind turbines. The turbines are floated out to sea. They generate electricity that's piped back to the steelworks. They uses that to make steel that makes the turbines. And you've got this kind of true circular economy. Is that a realistic vision? It is absolutely a realistic vision. And I
1: think it is a very important thing, again, coming back to what a net zero or a green economy would look like. And a green net-zero economy thinks about this in a circular kind of way where you actually minimize distances as much as you can to actually make best use of your resources. So I think that is absolutely realistic, but there needs to be a couple of things that need to come together. It's that the steel need to make the products and the steel grades needed to make those structures. Then also then there needs to be the contractual legal kind of uh, relationship between the generators and and the steel to actually buy that power in Mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. Then the infrastructure needs to be there in order to to bring that power or that energy, it could also be hydrogen directly, as I said earlier in the podcast, to actually to be used on the steelworks. So there's many things that come together. Yeah. So the, th- the important thing with also net zero, it's not all in everybody's control. Yeah. But it, it, by working together and actually having a working agreement where you can almost say, I can actually look you in the eye and I can it can depend on you. I can trust you for delivering. Mm. I think that is really important. And again. In Wales we are a small nation, but we have a lot of capability and we are all working very close together. Mm. Almost everybody knows each other. Yes. So it is important in that particular way that we can eyeball each other. So You said you would do this, are we yeah. actually doing that? Yeah. And I think this Celtic Freeport bit where people are starting to work together, which traditionally never work together actually we're competing and we see the same thing as SWIC it's actually a really good example of how things can work together in the future yeah so that's why I think it is it is a realistic it's still a vision mind yeah a lot of things need to happen and put in place to make that vision a reality yeah but I think we're making small steps now toward yeah. to that another reality yeah.
0: yeah and it's great to have such positivity throughout the podcast today Ben and uh, you know I've known you a long time on and and now and uh, and it doesn't surprise me at all but as you say there are. Are a lot of steps to get there there's a lot of money involved there's a lot of legislation involved but the important thing is to make progress uh, and I guess with your new role you know as we wrap up the podcast you know if you look to forward to the next 12 months you know what is does what your life look like for the next 12 months around uh, around net zero industry Wales
1: it revolves around particularly around uh, call the key policy drivers the key support mechanisms that are needed uh, particularly around co2 shipping but also then beyond that the hydrogen infrastructure the hydrogen business models but also actually to short term but also long term the uh, the support for electrification as well I think there's a real need to bring the cost particularly for industry down for electricity use because you don't want in unintended consequences of them moving to hydrogen and it's making them cost call it, and and it cost disadvantages again yeah. because actually we're better off using electricity in the first place so yeah. we need we also need to think about short and medium these per first and then so, working hard on that, but the priority is really on, on getting CO2 shipping recognized as being really needed to kickstart and use it as a catalyst for all of that we just talked about earlier. Mm. But secondly, it's about actually playing also a key role in the actual deployment execution. And what I learned in my Welsh Water Days is that actually bringing people together and having a trusted body that actually acts like an honest broker um, and being a trusted partner which I think net zero industry wills, given its, its, its proximity to government and still bound by the Nolan principles, can actually be that trusted broker. So what I'm working on very hard to establish over the next 12 months is to find a way of delivering a co-creation vehicle that makes, so the planning and permitting processes in particular, and the evidence getting around it, much less resource attentive, yeah. much more quicker, and actually do that in a Scrum and Agile kind of way, rather than a linear way, which we're used to, Of actually developers are um, the, pulling their, their evidence together, then submitting that evidence to an a environmental permitting body or like a planning authority, then they're deploying their own resource or buying resources in, then to assess that, come back with a feedback, and we're going back in that <laughs> yeah. loop. Well, wouldn't it be great if we can all work together in a trusted environment that actually we co-create those evidence together in one go. We also make best use of that, that resource which we have available. And we know resources are tight everywhere. Yeah. So I think it is important that we use resources in the most efficient way and without breaching any trust or any of the statutory duties. And I think that is an, an area where, if I am able to demonstrate that we can do that as NZW and play that a pivotal role in the actual deployment execution, I think we're in a really good place to be very attractive for other companies that, that are not present in Wales to invest in, yeah. but also for companies that are already here to make a serious investment in for, 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 for industry in the future.
0: Yeah, Ben, listen, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure having you back in, in the business and on site. It's great to see you again uh, from a personal perspective as well. Thanks for your story and thanks for your positivity. And the, the vision that Ben painted through our podcast today is hugely positive And it's, it's very complex. We've learned throughout this podcast series, this is no silver bullet. It is very complex. It's very multifaceted. There's talk about carbon, carbon capture, uh, CO2 shipment, pipelines, New technology, the use of scrap, the energy infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure—it is massively complicated. But with people like Ben and his new role, uh, organisations like Net Zero Industry Wales—you know—I liked Ben's. Uh, dist- we talked about collaboration a lot, and he and he ended by talking about co-creation. You know what a what a great vision of how the new way that companies, local authorities, governments, academia are going to have to work together to enable net zero future scenarios such as the ones Ben's painted out today. It's been great to have you on site, to look out to see and imagine those Eiffel towers floating off uh, two, two in a week I think you said which is a, a hell of a challenge and um, it's been a delight to have you on the podcast today Ben and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon, you're always welcome back on the site just remember that. So listen hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast, a uh, real good insight from someone who's been inside the industry and outside the industry is now one of the Shakers and movers in the world of net zero, certainly in Wales, but, but I'm certain that is beyond in terms of helping the, the country become a demonstrator for new technology and new ways of working. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not uh, subscribe? You can get it on Podbean, you can get it on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts look for Steelcasts, subscribe. There's 23 episodes in this series and uh, well, we'll just keep going uh, until we run out of guests and maybe then we'll start again. But uh, for now, hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you next time.